Geordie. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Thank you very much to 101 Holidays for asking me to write about the top travel podcasts this week and also including me in the list. If you want to check out the article and see what other travel podcasts I recommend, you can do so at 101holidays.co.uk. And remember, I'm always around for a chat as well if anyone wants to get in touch. You can find me on Facebook under Lisa Francesca Nand. We also have a big travel podcast group going. I think we've got about 1,800 people on there and a Facebook page as well. And I probably chat most on Twitter. You can find me at LFNand and also at Big Travel Pod. So do come along and say hello. We do have a growing audience around the world. Now, 98 countries now and counting, including 48 US states, I think. I don't know which uh, ones we're missing, but if you're from those states, I'll find out and hunt you down. Uh, no, I won't at all. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're doing quite well. We're getting, we're charting high in iTunes, releases and travel all around the world. And I'm so glad you're there and you're listening. So on to today's guest. The thing that strikes me most from my conversation with Paralympian swimmer Liz Johnson is how often she says how fortunate she is. She is fortunate in many ways. She's won gold, silvers and bronzes all over the world, competed for her country and been able to turn her passion into her life. But it hasn't been without its challenges and heartaches, from being born with cerebral palsy to the sad loss of her mum. Joining me for a truly inspirational conversation about her many, many travels is Paralympian swimmer Liz Johnson. I've been really fortunate that actually swimming has given me a great platform. It's formed who I am largely and I got to travel the world and make new friends at the same time. But yeah, I started way back when I was tiny just because I think, well, I was born with cerebral palsy and I'm hemiplegic. So essentially half of my body doesn't function how it should. And so one of the best forms of therapy for that is hydrotherapy. So I got straight in the water straight away, but now a lot of babies get in the water regardless of whether they have an impairment or not. But I got in the water and I loved, I did love the water. And I think like most children, my parents wanted to be able to go on holiday and actually relax while they were there rather than be constantly on alert that one of us was going to drown. So my mum enrolled me in the local swimming lessons. Uh, I did a crash course at half term. So I was four years old when I learned to swim. And it kind of progressed from there, but I really didn't ever envisage having a career in it until, which sounds crazy because I'm going to say about eight or nine. It's quite young for people to realise exactly. their career path is. But then I guess I retired at 30, so then it's also young there. So the whole curve got shifted. Mum was a teacher and once she used to take her class to the local leisure centre and the lifeguard there ran a swimming club for people with disabilities. And they were always asking if I would go because it was the same leisure centre that I did my swimming lessons at. So they knew I could swim, but I was always like, no, I don't, why would I go to that? Like, I'm not disabled. Even though I was always completely aware that I had cerebral palsy and completely aware that I did things differently. But as far as I was concerned, that was it. I did them differently, but I still could do what everybody else could do. I was always like, nah, you're all right. And I played all sport at school with everybody else and out in the street. I learned to play football. The boys taught me to play football, so I'm quite aggressive. And with my sport, and like again, like everybody, whatever sport was on the TV at the time. So when the Premier League started, we played football. When the Six Nations was on, we played rugby. When Wimbledon came around, we played tennis. You know, like whatever it was. And then we'd play cricket down the field. So I played all sport. 
and it was all fine. But then at primary school, when everybody started playing, the girls played netball, the boys played rugby for the school. That was how it worked. But I, even though I was pretty competitive within the PE group and within our class, I was never going to be able to play for the school. And so at that point, I was like, well, I still want to do something at that level because I love sport. So I like, fine, mum, take me to this swimming club. And when I got there, I realised, I don't know what I'd been expecting, but it was the most liberating thing I'd ever done in the sense that there were so many different types of people there, people that could teach you how to, a quick and more efficient way of putting your socks on with one hand, or people that needed other kinds of assistance. And actually, but everybody just existed for who they were and the water allowed us to be, all be free but also pursue goals and so I ended up going to my first national championships when I was 10 and it was March of 1996 and it was the year of the Paralympic Games so then when the Paralympics were on I mean the, the coverage was was really minimal but I watched it and I saw some people that I'd swum with at the championships back in March and I was like, well, they were at the same competition as me. So they can't be that much. They can't be special. They must just be very good at what they do. So I'm going to be a Paralympian. And they, and they all won medals, the ones I watched. The coverage at that time, they, they only put people on that won medals. So everyone I watched had got a medal. So I was like, right, in eight years' time, I'll be old enough to go to the Paralympics. And then four years after that, I'll try and win a gold medal. So really, that's... That's where it was born, like the idea was born. Uh, but obviously it wasn't going to be that easy. And uh, I said to my mum, right, we need to, I need to join a, a swimming club. And she was like, okay. My mum was the most supportive person ever, but she wasn't pushy at all. So she was like, well, what do you need? And I was like, well, we need a, uh, like a real swimming club where people train all the time. So she went out, as mums do, and she looked at all the swimming clubs in the area, she found them, we trialled them, um, and we settled on one, and basically that became my life then. The list that I looked at last night is just ridiculous of all the games and not just Olympics, but other competitions and the places you've travelled in the world. I don't know chronologically where they start in terms of Paralympics and Olympics, you will know, but there's Beijing, there's London, where else is there? I think that the one of the best things I've got out of sport and swimming is the opportunity to travel. I mean, I'm very fortunate. My mum my was a teacher, my dad was an accountant, so they lived for their holidays. But I'd never really, I guess, explored the wider world until I started swimming. But my first Paralympics were in Athens in 2004. But obviously, it's not just the major championships that you go to. There's the smaller competitions throughout the year. And so I spent a lot of time in Berlin because that's, they have a really good swim meet there. So we used to go every year. A lot of world championships, I've been really fortunate, I've been further afield. I've been to Argentina, uh, Brazil, South Africa, my world championships. And Paralympics was obviously Athens, Beijing, London. And I remember being at uni. I was, I'd literally dropped something off at uni when they announced that London were getting the bid. And I, part of me was super excited that I was going to get home games. Part of me was like, oh, we're not going to be travelling anywhere. But the flip side was that actually London, it was an, an incredible experience to swim in front of so many people that had had a part of your journey because they were actually able to get here. But also everybody that was genuinely willing you on to win rather than you having to pretend that they were shouting for you. But uh, yeah, so I've been, I've been to Australia, 
Uh, we went there on a training camp. And as a result, actually, of the way that my swim schedule has worked and the opportunities that it's given me, it's encouraged me to then explore other countries and cities when I've got a bit of downtime. I mean, when I was at uni, my, my housemates, we went on a long weekend to Venice. I went to Rome. But one of my best friends at university, he, he loves to travel too. And that there was a time where he was quite entrepreneurial and I was obviously swimming. So we had, we seemed to have more money than everybody else, like in our peer group. And they, they used to take the mick out of us because on graduation, once we finished our finals, I swam at competition in Canada in that summer, in Vancouver. And so we planned a trip. I had a, my swimming roommate actually went to university in Montreal. So we visited her and we went from there to Toronto and then we ended up in Vancouver for me to race and he acted as the team manager and one of the other guys came with us too and it was it was really good. I've been very fortunate to be able to maximise opportunities and then as a result when I have had downtime go places that maybe I would never have been before or swimming wouldn't take me so I've been to Vietnam and we went to Japan and we went to Tokyo but obviously that was before the games were announced so now swimming would take you to Tokyo too but I'm not swimming anymore so so yeah I've been really lucky to go to lots of incredible places and so there was one summer well it was a winter in 2009 we had european championships in a long course 50 meter pool in the october and they were in iceland and then six weeks later we were in rio de janeiro for the world short course championships in the 25 meter pool so we went from minus four to 44 in the space of six weeks do you have any difficulty it sounds like you don't at all but are there any impairments uh, to travel with getting around i think the biggest thing is that we j- i just have to plan ahead when i was going to athens i went to athens the year the year that i finished my a levels and a group of my really good friends were going backpacking to australia and i wasn't i wasn't annoyed that i wasn't going because i was going to athens and my mum said, you know, like, nobody, nobody makes you swim. And I said that as well. I'm like, nobody's forced me. I want to swim. And I was like, but I'd really love to be going to Australia as well. And I remember my mum saying to me at the time, she said, Liz, in reality, you're not really cut out for backpacking. In the sense that physically, you can't survive with just a pair of flip-flops. Because I can't wear flip-flops for a start. So they all took flip-flops and, like, one pair of shoes. And they were fine because flip-flops are pretty, they go with everything, don't they? Yeah, but they're really dangerous. I know yeah, someone yeah. that's just fallen off them and broken their leg, like literally. Like, yeah, yeah, they're not safe. <laughs> but like they are, but it meant, and also, and like just, like I can't, it's really difficult to travel light because I, well, even just opening a bottle of water, like I have to put it in between my arm and my chest, which then squeezes the the bottle and, and the contents of the bottle overflows and comes out. So there's always a risk of me dirtying something or, or falling over and, and ripping it or just, yeah, every every outfit, I don't have... I'm limited to my footwear, so I can't have a pair of footwear that goes with everything. So I just need a lot of stuff. So backpacking was never my... Like, like she was right. At the time, I was like, what? But she was like, you're better off working really hard to get to a position that you're in and then doing lots of short, sharp trips, which is what I've done. It must have been interesting also from an early age because you were essentially, even though it was your passion, it, you're working when your friends are off doing what they're doing. Absolutely. But the great thing about swimming was that it never felt like work. I did it because I loved it and I had a goal that I wanted to achieve and I wasn't talented enough to be able to not train and still win. So I knew I had to commit, but it didn't feel like a chore. And I always said as soon as it was no longer the most important thing to me and decisions became harder, 
because they were always tough decisions, but I never saw them as tough decisions because to me it was obvious that swimming came first. But I did always say, in, like, as I got older, when that changed, then I would stop. Let's have a talk about some of these incredible destinations you went to. What was the place from a travel point of view that stood out most? I'm so lucky. I've been to so many places, but I really, I loved, I loved South Africa. Really loved South Africa. And one time we, we delayed, so we landed and into Cape Town and then the nature of the team, half the team managed to make the connection and half didn't, but the airport office was closed, so there's nothing, they, no one could help us. So we ended up getting like laid over in Cape Town for um, the evening. So we, I just did that whole red bus thing where you just get to see everything. And I was like, no, nah, I definitely want to come back here. And then I went back with a charity to do a, the abseil off Table Mountain. So that was pretty cool. So I do, I did really love South Africa, but um, Brazil's been a great place for me because I went to the World, Champi World Championships in 2009. And then my, um, later in my career, I met my partner. He, he swims in Brazil. So now we spend a lot of time in Brazil. And when we first got together, he was living in Rio de Janeiro and Rio's obviously very cool, but he's from the Northeast. And it's some of the most beautiful scenery. The beaches are amazing. The people are always lovely. The food's incredible. So Brazil now obviously has a special place in my heart too. Do you feel lucky to have had your disability that has led you to this? Absolutely. I always say I'm lucky and people always shout at me for saying, oh, I'm so, I'm so lucky that this happened to me. But actually, I think I'm fortunate that it happened when I was born. So I, I don't know what I'm missing is the first thing in terms of being disabled and, and not realising how, how difficult... Because I'm sure if I gave an able-bodied person my impairment for a week, they'd find it horrific and stressful. But I, I, in my head, and the way that I live with my life, is that actually everybody's got a struggle going on. And I'm just really fortunate that actually you can see mine and there's provision for it. I've got a lot of confidence from having swimming and being good at it and it gave me a platform to try new things and it also one thing that swimming did was made me strong like physically strong and it's nobody's fault but like the systems in place don't cater for people like me because for my level of impairment I still I present way more able than the many so the intervention isn't deemed necessary but actually I'm able to be how I am because of swimming because of the opportunities it gave me and I've met so many incredible people and like I don't think there's any better education than travel because you try new food you put yourself out of your comfort zone especially for me because I find even now I find in my house and in Britain we're very well equipped we're very technology plays a huge part and a lot of the time people with impairments rely on technology to overcome their difficulties or to assist in situations whereas you go to other countries and they don't have that so even something like an electric tin opener or left-handed scissors those kind of things that when I then go to Brazil for example and, I, and they're not there or they're not in someone's house because they don't require them then you realize actually yeah things are, can be difficult but then everyone's got a struggle going on in their world and I'm just I'm grateful that mine has actually opened up a whole world of opportunity. What's been the most life-changing experience you've had along your travels? Hmm. The proper answer here would be to say, met my partner. But because um, obviously we were both swimmers and we met in Eindhoven on, on the circuit at World Championships. But I think for me, 
it's the new places that you experience and it always makes you come back and evaluate your lifestyle evaluate your what you're putting the importance on and just realize that what makes you happy and I've been really lucky that travel is just a theme in my life now whether it was for swimming whether it's now for pleasure whether it's now to go back and see family in Brazil or again I I'm really fortunate I'm in a position where I'm able to make a difference to other people and so I'm a patron for a charity and it's called Dream Flight which is perfect and actually every October we charter a jumbo jet from British Airways and we take 192 seriously ill or disabled children between the ages of 8 and 14 from all over the UK to Orlando for 10, for 10 days without their parents. And I went on that trip in 1997 because the charity's been running for 32 years. I went in 1997 and I think that played a part as well for me because it was the first time that I really stepped outside of my comfort, my circle. Because like I said, I'm completely comfortable with who I am and I always was. But I guess I undervalued how much importance I put on the security of having people who knew me really well around me and who I trusted. My family my school friends, my teachers, you know, people that knew me that I trusted. But then if I went outside of that, then I would make choices based on my comfort zone. So even food choices, like I would always choose something that didn't need cutting to eat, regardless of whether that was the meal I wanted. So it made me, so even then, even at 11 years old, travel played that part. And now I'm able every year to help other children have that experience and that travel is there and again as so now I have a network of people who live in America who work at the airline which enables me to travel a little more so um, yeah I've been really lucky. That must be really incredible taking those children away I mean many of us have not been to away from our parents at that time let alone if you need additional support with things have you seen the way it changes people? Yeah so now over 32 years Dreamflight has taken over 6,000 children across to Florida. And I think every single one of them has a different story. Some people, the change is obvious immediately. For some people, it's more underlying. It's, it's more subtle. And for some people, it is just about having a good time. For me, it made me realise that the Paralympic Games was an option. Because up until that point of going on the trip, I was kind of like, well... I can do everything everybody else does. So why wouldn't I just do it the same way? Why would I need the Paralympics? Not, and not need as in they weren't important, but like, won't people just question me? Won't people just think I'm taking an easy route? But what Dreamflight did for me was it made me realise that everybody needs help with something. And everyone has an outlet of reaching their potential and being the best versions of themselves that they can be in whatever environment. So then from then on, I came back and I really embraced it. And also... You go away on that trip with a variety of different types of illness or impairment. And actually, I was fortunate that I had a disability, but my health was there and I was in control. And actually, when you're disabled to a point, you're in control of your destiny. Like it, it might not be easy and it might be harder, but ultimately there's less unknowns. And like, my mum got ill with cancer and I, I suddenly and I realised that actually that's horrific in the sense that you can do there's nothing you can do to prevent that you can be the the healthiest person you you can handle your homework on time you know you can get eight hours of sleep a night you can 
work so hard that you get lots of money, you can live in a nice place, you can have influential friends, none of it matters. Illness isn't selective. It doesn't care who it who it picks. Whereas with disability, like I owed it to myself and but everybody that wasn't in a position where they, they had a choice to make the most of the opportunity. Your mum passed away when you were flying over. Yeah, so she? like she passed away in 2008 when I was in Beijing. She died on the 1st of September and I raced on the 12th. How yeah. was that? Do you mind talking about uh, it? No, it's fine. I talk about it all the time. I think my mum getting ill was the biggest impactful thing that's ever happened to me because all the other stuff that people deem to be challenging like my impairment or any any anything really kind of pales into insignificance in the sense that that was the first thing that I could not control I could not help and like my mum she was always she was my person and like everybody's got a person and it's not always their parents but for me my mum I was an only child for five and a half years and um, she was my teacher when I was in year three and my dad used to work away a lot so my mum was who I am like she was the reason I am who I am and she made decisions and put me in situations that made me thrive and, and definitely challenged me but so that I would become this person that would be always be okay I remember when she when I found out she was ill at, the, at first I was like don't worry there's loads they can do and then when I found out it was terminal, that for me was the the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. And like that was when I really had the wind knocked out of my sails in a sense. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a situation I cannot control. I cannot make better. I can't fix it for her. Like no, there's so many uncertainties at this point. And it was the year into Beijing. So I still had to keep swimming. I still wanted to keep swimming. Sorry. <laughs> oh, grateful that I had swimming because it gave me an escape and mum I think the best the best thing if you can say that about my mum having cancer was the fact that we had the warning that she was going to pass away because it gave me the opportunity to have conversations with her and to to go home and spend more time with her and we kind of went through it together and actually she helped us mourn, if that makes sense. Because she was the strongest person I know, or I've ever known. And like, she probably always will be. And um, I'm always grateful that I had that time with her. And actually, if she'd, if she'd carried on living, would she have been any better? No, probably not. Because actually, I didn't want to watch her suffer. Um, and it was relatively quick. It was a year, basically, from finding out she was ill to her actually passing away. And I always think that was almost the optimum time. If, if, you, if, you can, if you can get a positive out of a bad situation, for me, that was it. And actually, at the same time, again, we say, like, we've, the theme of what we've been talking about is everybody's got something going on. And I will always be grateful that I had her as she was for 22 years to enable me to become who I am now rather than have her for 90 years but it'd be absolutely rubbish <laughs> but you swam in the paralympics in beijing yes days after she died 10 days after i found out she passed away it was race day for me and um again i don't think 
there's so much you can't control, but actually the timing, if it had been any other time, I don't know how I would have coped, but it was almost like, again, the optimum amount of time. I was already at the games. If I didn't win, I had a good excuse. I didn't have to race. I no one knew how it was going to go, but actually there's no good time for someone to pass away. And actually, for me, being in Beijing was perfect in the sense that she wouldn't have been there anyway. So I wasn't missed. Like, I could go into this, like, crazy space in my head where nothing had changed. And I it just put everything in perspective for me because I'd always got really anxious about racing and concerned about if the results didn't go my way or if I messed it up or... All, thing, all silly things that can happen logistically within a race. But for me, it just gave me perspective and it was a race and it was two lengths of a pool and I needed to get there and back before everybody else. And actually, it revolutionised the way that then I approached my swimming moving forward and actually my life. I took a whole check on my whole life. And then so actually a lot of my travelling and the things I do now, I do because I can and because I, you don't, you never know how much time you've got. And actually, life is for living. So, I've been really fortunate. Like I said, if my if friends are going somewhere, then if I can fit it in, I'll go. And I think for me, one of the most that was definitely the most life changing experience on the whole journey was that period into Beijing because my mum was ill, she passed away, I was injured, but ultimately, and I won. And actually, I should never have won that race based on that one year preparation but it really instilled in me that actually you don't get your rewards immediately always and it was the 12 years of work that I'd put in before which then really helps when I'm talking to young people or others to help give perspective because unfortunately in today's society a lot of people are impacted by a lot of horrible things and and the majority of people experience cancer in some form and she would have wanted you to to go on and race wouldn't she Oh, absolutely. She'd worked her whole life to give me the opportunity to be the best version of myself. And actually, what it did teach me in that one moment was that you never know what's going to happen. And so I didn't know if I was going to go to another Paralympic Games. And, I, and you could plan to. Unfortunately for me, I did go to London, but I didn't win. I swam quicker in London than I did in Beijing. And on the day, it was only good enough for bronze. So you just never know. So you've got to, whatever the opportunities are, you've got to grasp them. Let's talk a little bit about London, because London, the London 2012 Olympics, I think, and Paralympics, really revolutionised and changed the way people viewed Paralympics, because it used to just be almost like a little tag on on the end. Yeah. And for London, it was equal. I went to several events in both, and it was just the most incredible time as a Londoner living near the Olympic site. And it was just the most beautiful time for the UK, and particularly for London and particularly for the Paralympics, which was finally on an equal footing, it felt, to the Olympics. Yeah, London 2012 was really unique, especially in Britain, in the sense that it was the first time that broadcasters had to bid separately to put on the Games coverage. So in the past, a broadcaster would bid, they'd win the Olympic coverage and they would get the Paralympic coverage, whereas for London, that wasn't the case. And obviously, a lot of budget and planning goes into a bid of that size. So it was almost unthinkable that one broadcaster was going to be able to do the same for both, which is what happened. And so when Channel 4 won the rights to host the Paralympic coverage, it meant that it opened a whole world of opportunity because now they had a, 
budget and a time frame that they could really use their programming and use their scheduling to educate people on all the que- on all the things to do with the Paralympic movement that they normally try to ask while they're watching the racing or the, or the competition that's going on. So it meant that by the time we got to London 2012 itself, people could watch it for the sporting competition it was because they'd already seen profiles of the athletes they were watching or they'd already watched a documentary on how the classification system worked and on why people might not look like they should be racing each other, but actually it's a fair system. So that then enabled people to enjoy it for sport and it enabled society to experience what disabled people or people with disabilities are capable of. And there's a direct comparison between the Olympics and the Paralympics because they are the same event. They're they're the same venues, everything's the same except the people. And so then what's happened is people, the society has realised that if it's possible in a sporting environment, then why is it not possible in a workplace environment or in a social environment? So yeah, London 2012 was a milestone. Did you guys do the whole walking around the stadium? I think I remember it now. I spent a lot of time working on the Olympics on the site while they were building it. I was making a lot of films, corporate films for the people, Locog and the people, various people working on it. And I got to, one of the highlights of that was going into the Olympic Stadium for the first time. And it was one of the days that they were putting the seats down. So it was really exciting. It was getting like the last few months before the Olympics. And I was there to interview a certain guy called Oscar Pistorius. Um, And it was incredible, you know, because he was such a a superstar and such a brilliant representation of everything that was wonderful about it. And he, he still was, you know, by the end of the Paralympics, we all know what happened since, but it was just such this incredible moment. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for you going around with Team GB and, you know, just having that everyone there and cheering. What what was it like? You tell me. I loved always the opening ceremonies. I went to them all when I was competing. But for London, you just, you always used to get hit by this wave of noise. But for London, it was insane in the sense that everywhere you looked was a Union Jack flag or you'd see the odd Welsh flag or the Scottish flag or English flag. Like, people were everywhere. And so all around the stadium, there was a chance that there was somebody that you knew. Yeah, it was incredible to walk around. But then I was really fortunate to be the athlete that read the oath during the ceremony, which was another level of craziness because I've never been so nervous in my entire life. I was going to say, I'd be absolutely Um, terrified. Because, like, you train to race. But you don't ever... And like a lot of the time when you're speaking, as long as you make sense, nobody questions it. But the thing with that oath, it's like it's the same words for the Olympics and the Paralympics, summer and winter, so every every two years, but only two people say them. You can't get them wrong. And I remember like, I remember being so nervous. And then my, my partner, he, he was really fortunate that he had a home games in Rio. And so he read the oath in Rio. So that was pretty special. But I remember him coming off the stage after the opening semi at Rio and he was going you were right that's the scariest thing I've ever done because he's a lot calmer than me generally a lot more laid back but for London it was the most special thing about London was the detail and that you could be involved in the process as all the way as athletes you were involved the whole way so when you got to the, the stadium and you got to the pool and you got or, or wherever you were competing it was kind of familiar 
and you felt like it was your game from a non-competitive point of view it felt like it was our games as well it was it was really incredible um we've running out of time so is there are there any standout moments from travel that i have missed that you'd like to tell me about any interesting stories or things that have happened yeah so i went to india for a wedding because my one of the best things to come out of swimming is my university choice in the sense that I like swimming always directed me down a path that had I not had it I might not have gone that way and so I went to Swansea University because it was where I swimming and the business school were really close together and it was where I could optimize everything and there I met one of my best friends and I, I touched upon him before because he was who I went to Tokyo with that first time we went to India because he works abroad now and within like a multinational company and so one of his friends well two of his colleagues were getting married and he was like do you want to do you want to come because he was my plus one to a wedding in Portugal because my partner still swims so his schedule is very restricted so to him my best friend he came with me to Portugal for a wedding and then I was like yeah I'll come and that was so nice to experience it authentically and I think that's also what I've learned is actually when you go to these countries or these cities or these places try and meet people that you know there or a friend of a friend that's a local so that you see it from their eyes and you don't just see the guidebook everything that's listed in the guidebook and all the, all the corporate stuff you actually really get embedded in the environment you're in and then you don't need to be there that long but you get a real feel for it so i did really love india and the food's amazing i climb out fuji so I did go back to Tokyo. In fact, every time I go to a really cool place and I say, then someone seems to develop a, a fundraiser event because they're like, oh, she likes that place. She'll, she'll be sucked in. Um, San Francisco, I love San Francisco. Hang on, how was, how was climbing Mount Fuji, Fuji when you have limited use of one side of your body? Climbing was okay in the sense that I was just like, I've got a goal, I'm going to try and reach the top. But coming down was awful. And, I lit, and this is not an exaggeration. I probably fell over every 20 seconds for three and a half hours. And like I was, I was landing so hard that I was winding myself. And like I'm not, a, I'm not a weak person mentally, but I did have to take myself to the, one of the bathrooms to give myself a slap across the face and be like, you just need to get down here. But yeah, so for me, climbing Mount Fuji, Fuji was amazing. And also, I mean, I, it's not the reason I do it, but there's always someone in the group when I do these crazy challenges that looks at me and thinks, well, if she can do it, then I definitely have to be able to do it. So, like, it kind of does drag the rest of the group a lot. And we had this, we had a target to be there by sunrise. So we climbed through the night so that we'd get to the top of sunrise. And I was like, I am not being in the group that doesn't make it. So I was like, Whoa! and it took ages, like six and a half hours or something. But I had support. And again, I've got great, I've been really fortunate to build up some really good relationships with people I really trust. And so I've always got someone around that's going to give me a, a shove up a rock or, or you know, put, pick me up when I'm falling over. So I'm really blessed that I've got some great people in my life. Well, you mentioned abseiling in Cape Town. Again, you know, you have limited use of one side of your body. How, how does that... That must be quite terrifying when you launch yourself off well, a mountain. Well, I'm really... I hate heights. So, yeah, the, the, the worst bit was the heights thing. But I was lucky I was still swimming there, so I was still strong. So I still trusted my good old trusty left arm and left leg. But I remember thinking, more limbs would be better here. So I tried to use my right side, but it actually made it worse. And in the end, I was like, I'm just going to go with my good side and bounce down like at an angle. And the, one of the guys I was going down with, I was like, I said to him, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. And he was like, well, I thought that would have been obvious. So now I realise that actually 
your strength is in what you've got, not what you haven't got. And actually trying to be like everybody else doesn't work. And everybody's differences give them a competitive advantage. So I always just try to make the most of what I got. <laughs> it sounds like you're definitely doing that. I mean, you retired three years ago, but you're only 33. So what are you doing now? So now I guess I use in my experience and my opportunities to help evolve things for other people and, and have positive experiences and create opportunities. I still love to travel. Just in June, I swam from Alcatraz to San Francisco Bay. Oh my God. So um, that was cool, again, for charity. That's because quite a it was, stretch of water, it? Isn't was it? horrible, yeah. It was quite lonely. Like I, like, I knew I could swim, so it was... But there was a lot of people in the group that really struggled with it because it was lonely. Because swimming, it's not like... Like, I cycled to London to Paris. And I was like, that was cool because... You just talk to someone you've never spoken to before and 10 miles have passed. Whereas swimming, there's no one to talk to. It was, but like, it was incredible to breathe and see the Golden Gate Bridge and like look back and see Alcatraz. It was incredible. But now I think I've been really fortunate. And what retire- what I've realised since retirement is that actually I always knew that swimming was great and it was a perfect vehicle for me. But actually I'm nowhere near as physically strong and fit as I was when I was swimming so naturally life is harder and so I go I make a conscious effort to go to the gym and to exercise but it's exhausting like when I was swimming if as long as I trained if I did nothing else all day I'd done what I was supposed to do whereas now I can't justify being tired all day and not being able to have a conversation because I went to the gym to try and stay fit and healthy so I realized that you need a lot more of an adaptable lifestyle and a lot more flexible and the opportunity to have everything that everybody else has. And you shouldn't have to forego that just to prove that you are as good as someone in a certain area of your life. So I started doing some consultancy work in the recruitment industry and I met a guy, Steve Carter, who's now become my business partner. And I got more and more involved and I realised it was an area that had no limitations in the sense of what time of day you worked or where you worked from. And so it was a perfect vehicle to enable people with impairments or barriers to conventional work environments to be in charge of their own destiny, have a job that they enjoy and that they're good at, which enables them then to have a lifestyle that they want. So whether that be a family, whether that be able to travel, whether that just be able to go to the gym and stay fit. So I set up a recruitment company called the ability people but it's more like a a people sourcing agency really none of the team have got recruitment experience other than my business partner steve and the trainers that we use people that are working with us are doing so because they are motivated and they understand process and they are resilient and they want to match people they want to change other people's lives by finding them jobs that they want that they're going to enjoy that then in turn enables them to have the lifestyles they want so the Ability People, we've only been running since we launched on September the 3rd, but it's going really well. And it means that obviously the Ability People themselves, TAP, enables people to join our team and have that flexible, fluid working lifestyle. But also we can place other people and we're not just placing people, candidates with impairments. We're placing the best people for the job. But naturally, you will hopefully then increase the amount of disabled people in work through one way or another because... The employment gap for disabled people has stood at over 30% for like 10 years. And it, to me, it's crazy because I, I know so many people worldwide that are some of the most 
insightful, experienced in terms of their lives and problem solving, because that's what we do on a general day to day basis, people on the planet. And for every one of those that's been fortunate enough to be a Paralympian, there's hundreds that haven't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they don't deserve the same opportunities. So you've just got to use your fortunes and your position to try and influence that in some way. Well, that's brilliant. Um, I'm going to ask you my last question now, which is always about music, because I always think that music for a lot of people goes very much hand in hand with travel. And the question is, if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a special or memorable time or place of travel, what would that song be? Oh, you could have warned me about that one before. It's difficult. It doesn't Ooh. have to be your favourite song. Oh, no, I do know. See, so, it happens. It's an epiphany so, for many so, people. Whitney Houston, I want to dance with somebody. We obviously, as swimmers, we used to spend a lot of time away, but like with our swimming friends. And it was the most intense time and they're the most intense relationships. And they really are your people because they get you like nobody else. But actually, if you were in your environment growing up, you probably would never choose them. And we were in Durban, South Africa, for World Championships. It was my 21st birthday, that trip. And we were all in a room one day, and it came on. And we literally started jumping from one double bed to the next. Like, just back and forth, like, like hooligans. And I remember saying, and we say it now all the time, because I was like, girls, just just, just a bit. Because I was, I was jumping and dancing as well. Uh, but I was like, shh, people are trying to sleep, you know. And, like, so now, every time something happens... The, the other girls always go, shh, people are trying to sleep, you know. But we every time that song comes on, for any of us, wherever we are, we always like record it and, and WhatsApp it to the group. So, yeah, there is definitely that. Thank you so much, Liz. I'm sure I'm not the only one who finds your life story so inspiring. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We have new episodes every Tuesday, so do subscribe on whatever app you're using so you don't miss any. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.